Hello and welcome to episode 19 of the JS Bach Files. I'm Terence O'Grady and today we're going to take a look at a couple of Bach's flute sonatas. As is the case for some of Bach's other chamber works, there are uncertainties regarding some of the flute sonatas. Three of the sonatas that had formerly been attributed to Bach have been omitted from the Neue Bach Ausgabe, the newer version of his collected works. The Sonata for Flute and Continue in C Major and the Sonatas for Flute and Harpsichord Obligato in G Minor and E Flat. These works have been removed from the official listing of Bach's works because of ambiguous manuscript attributions and also for stylistic reasons. Although Bach scholar Robert L. Marshall has argued that the Sonata in E Flat, even though its style is somewhat more consistently gallant than we might expect for Bach, is very likely by Johann Sebastian himself and it's our expectations that are out of sync. At any rate, it is often assumed, at least by some historians, that these three dubious sonatas may have actually been composed or partially composed by one of Bach's students, or perhaps even C.P.E. Bach. That leaves four works for the solo flute. The unaccompanied partita in A minor, which some scholars consider to have been based on an earlier work for a different instrument, the sonatas in E minor and E major for flute and continuo, and the sonatas in B minor and A major for flute with obligato harpsichord. We'll look first at Bach's sonata in E minor for flute and continuo, BWV 1034. This is one of the flute sonatas thought to have been composed when Bach was employed by the court of Curtin, but some historians have suggested it may have been composed later at Leipzig, since the existing manuscript copy was probably made, at least according to Marshall, in 1725 or 1726. It is also true, as Marshall points out, that in the middle of 1724, Bach's interest in the flute seems to have increased markedly, as indicated by the number of challenging flute parts which he included in his cantatas at that point. What is more likely than that he was inspired by the perhaps temporary availability of an unusually fine flautist? At any rate, the E minor sonata is widely assumed to be the earliest of the flute sonatas. The sonata is in four movements in a slow-fast, slow-fast pattern, typical of the sonata da chiesa type that had been invoked from the middle Baroque. The opening movement is marked adagio ma non tanto and is generally taken at a rather slow tempo. It is, I think, a particularly interesting first movement, built upon a rhythmically active theme, characterized by subtle syncopations and an effective use of non-harmonic tones, particularly suspensions. It opens with a very distinctive and effective melody, which starts halfway through the first beat, in other words, on the and of one, with a simple descending tonic triad, B, G, E, which heads back up immediately in a short, short, long pattern, two sixteenth notes going to an eighth note, landing a half step higher on C. We'll refer to this as thematic idea number one. That C, the high point of the melody so far, quickly becomes even more important as it is tied across the strong beat and becomes an expressive dissonance against the bass. Suspensions of this sort are not particularly unusual for Bach. We've seen plenty of them in previous episodes, or any other 18th century composer, for that matter. But Bach deals with the suspended dissonance in a somewhat unusual way. The suspended dissonance doesn't resolve down to a consonance by step, as we might expect. Instead, it plunges down a diminished seventh to a consonance, the third of the dominant chord, and then works its way back up to the note we expected in the first place. So right away, in just the first measure, Bach has employed a device which, even though it goes by quickly, adds an unusual and expressive quality to the melody. The second measure employs rhythmic and melodic figures rather similar to the first, 
but the E minor triad ascends rather than descends, and more importantly, it keeps going with its ascending arpeggiation reaching up to a high G on the second beat of the measure with the same short, short, long pattern leading to another suspended note at its high point. Eventually, and just as in the first bar, it works its way back down with a combination of leaps and scale fragments. So, there's a lot going on in just the first two measures. It's a little difficult to picture, but not that hard to hear. Here's a simplified version with the flute part and the cello part providing the walking bass against it, but without the chords that would normally be provided by the continual player. My example actually ends on the downbeat of measure 3, where the melody pauses briefly above the dominant chord. But by the second beat of that measure, the melodic flow resumes, quoting the opening motives from the first bar or variants of them as the melody stretches out higher and higher, peaking on a sustained B. It's at this point that the continual bass first departs from its mostly stepwise walking bass pattern and takes on independent motivic significance of its own with a new pattern, a figure beginning with a large ascending leap and followed by descending broken thirds in sixteenth notes. We'll call this thematic idea number two, and this is what it sounds like. A variant of this new motive, immediately taken up by the flute, dominates the next three bars, although new chromatic appoggiaturas also play an important role, as Bach heads to his first emphatic cadence in E minor in measure 9, at which point he reintroduces a variation of the original theme. We'll hear an actual performance of the opening nine bars. Right at the end of my excerpt, you can hear that Bach, using mostly the same thematic material I just referred to, is on the move tonally. He cadences briefly in G major, where he presents a variation of thematic idea number one, but almost immediately abandons G major and heads toward B minor. Some new motives are introduced at that point, but the old ones continue to dominate, especially the arpeggio figures based on the short, short, long rhythms, the two sixteenths going to an eighth, and the broken thirds pattern from thematic idea number two, although Bach sometimes turns them around and uses those broken thirds in an ascending pattern. Meanwhile, the bass line takes on an increasingly active role, providing variant echoes of the flute's thematic material, even as the flute is showing off new variants of its own. The bass line is particularly busy as the flute sustains longer notes above it, 
guaranteeing that the rhythmic energy never ebbs. As we approach the next cadence, the flute activity surges with a near constant flow of sixteenth notes, which cover a couple of octaves of the instrument's range, sometimes incorporating athletic leaps of an octave and a half. It's not long before we hear an emphatic cadence back on B minor, the beginning, insofar as this can be heard as a typical binary form, of the second section of the movement. What we encounter at this point is at least somewhat new, especially the rhythmic activity in the continual bass line, as it introduces a couple of measures of eighth-quarter-eighth, eighth-quarter syncopations. Against this new rhythmic idea in the continual bass, the flute is engaged in what has to be considered a new melodic idea, although it certainly borrows elements from earlier motives. This new idea is characterized by a series of mildly dissonant accented neighbor tones into which periodic ascending leaps of a sixth are intermingled. We'll call this thematic idea number three, and we'll hear it in a minute. This new idea soon evolves, however, and gradually yields to more familiar motives from thematic idea number one. Meanwhile, the level of the rhythmic activity stays high as the continual bass part reverts to its accustomed pattern of eighth note movement, and soon flute cascades of sixteenth notes and arpeggio patterns moving from high in the flute's range to close to the bottom dominate the action. As we head back to E minor for the final measures of the movement, the opening theme is never restated in exactly its original form, but both the flute and the cello draw consistently on earlier motives, and in the last few measures, their reliance on broken third patterns provides an almost exact counterpart to the measures leading up to the first cadence in E minor. Here's the last part of the piece, beginning with the cadence on B minor at measure 17 and the introduction of thematic idea number three in the flute and proceeding to the end. The second movement in the typical Sonata da Chiesa is typically faster in tempo than the first, in this case marked Allegro, and shows some fugue-like characteristics. A full-scale, multi-voice fugue is obviously not feasible in a sonata for flute and continuo because there are really only two lines present, the flute itself and the continuo bass line, since the right hand of the harpsichord is normally relegated to providing chordal support. 
But that doesn't mean Bach can't exploit fugal elements in this movement, and he most certainly does. The movement is again in E minor, and the fugue subject is a playful and atmospheric little melody of four bars, initially accompanied by eighth note chords from the harpsichord and cello. The first bar, which, as is often the case, presents the most important thematic material of the movement, begins again on the second half of the first beat, moving upwards from the tonic note E with two sixteenth notes. These two sixteenth notes launch us immediately into one of Bach's favorite long, short-short, dactylic, rhythmic figures, an eighth note followed by two sixteenths, which itself passes quickly to two pairs of eighth notes, each leaping up a fourth, the second beginning a step lower than the first. So, as is typical for Bach, the melody seems headed in two directions at once, the top implied line ascending, at least initially, with the bottom implied line descending. As soon as we hear the second and third bars, which virtually duplicate the first bar a third lower each time, we realize that it's the descending motion that is the most powerful. Here's a simplified example of the first four measures. You might have noticed that the fourth bar breaks away from the pattern somewhat, although the rhythmic figure of an eighth followed by two sixteenths is still prominent. After four and a half measures, the continual bass line answers the subject at the fifth, adjusted for the lower octave, against which the flute continues with a complex counter-subject consisting of a series of sixteenth notes in a sequentially repeated pattern leading to a quarter note tied across the bar. After two bars, this pattern is modified somewhat as the key moves toward B minor. After the subject and its answer plays out, we encounter an episode in which, not surprisingly, elements of the subject continue in the bass line, especially the distinct rhythmic patterns employing eighth and two sixteenth notes, while the flute engages in a new series of repeated patterns with some across-the-bar suspensions. These patterns are mostly triad-based and, as so often the case for Bach, suggest different layers of melody. After an emphatic cadence in E minor, a new section begins. Our next example, an actual performance, will take us that far. We might expect to encounter a bit more fugal imitation at this point, but what we do here is another episode, or I guess you might say a continuation of the previous episode, but it doesn't really sound like that. It sounds new, and not because of what the flute is doing, which is basically a continuation of the triadic bass passage work in sixteenth notes, although a new lower neighbor figure is introduced on the second and fourth beats of every measure, and that is at least a new detail. Here's what it sounds like in a simplified version. As you could probably tell, the most noticeable new element is the behavior of the continual bass, which is silent on the first and third beats of the measure, 
but comes in on the offbeats with ascending leaps in eighth notes, with the top note rising by step. Bach maintains this pattern for three measures, breaking it up in the fourth. In the measures after that, the continual bass picks up its pattern again, and the flute starts to explore more of the higher part of its range, still exploiting triadic bass arpeggios in sixteenth notes. At this point, we're starting to move away from E minor again with a series of secondary dominants, a term we've used before suggesting that one chord acts as the dominant for the next chord, which acts as the dominant for the one after that, and so forth. Using this harmonic device, which involves the presentation of the same arpeggio pattern four times, each time based on a new secondary dominant chord, Bach spins us around to the key of G major, where the subject returns in the continual bass. Of course, now in G major, the subject sounds a bit different, even though the first bar represents a note-for-note -note duplication of the theme as originally heard in E minor. But thereafter, the intervals are frequently different, as you might expect, because of the new key, and Bach breaks from the original pattern to establish a reasonably convincing cadence on G major. Still, the theme is clearly recognizable, as is its invitation at the fifth by the flute four and a half bars later, as we move toward D major, the dominant of G major, where we cadence after a few bars. But we no sooner get to that emphatic cadence on D major when we're on the move again, as Bach introduces a new or partially new episode. The flute's figuration patterns are increasingly similar to those in the first episode, but the continual bass line initially offers up a new idea, three ascending sixteenths followed by a series of descending eighths, and repeats it three times on different pitch levels to effectively erase all traces of G major. Soon we are back in B minor, and we hear a more familiar pattern from the continual bass, one closely related to the offbeat pattern I gave an example of just a minute ago, the one with three eighth notes beginning on the end of beats one and three. We're also back to the strong sequence of secondary dominant chords we heard earlier, each chord acting as the dominant of the one that follows it. Bach concludes this sequence by sitting on the dominant of G for two bars, with the flute swirling through familiar arpeggio patterns. When we finally hear a cadence on G major, it is less convincing than we anticipated, perhaps because it doesn't lead to another real fugal exposition, which at this point in the movement we might have expected. The first measure of the subject turns up all right in the continual bass line, even on the same pitch level as the original, although now harmonized by a G major chord rather than the original E minor chord. And it repeats twice more, each time a third lower. Meanwhile, the flute is playing a partially inverted version of that same opening motive against it. So there are plenty of references to the fugue subject, now in the key of G, but no real fugal imitation takes place. Even after we move back to the original tonic of E minor, and the continual bass gives us a note-for-note -note quotation of the fugue subject, the flute seems uninterested in imitating it, engaging instead in more sixteenth-note figuration patterns. The flute does finally take up the subject against the original eighth-note chord accompaniment in the continual, but no final bit of imitation is forthcoming. Instead, the flute lapses into its familiar figuration patterns over a deceptive cadence and, after some tricky chromatic movement in the continual part, we cadence on the original tonic of E minor. So, although this movement has some fugue-like characteristics, it also displays concerto-like elements as well. The recurrences of the fugue subject seem more like the internal ritonellos in a concerto movement. 
Also, the episodes are at times quite extensive, with rather distinctive personalities of their own. But none of this is particularly shocking. We've seen Bach inject concerto-like elements into non-concerto forms on a number of occasions before. But it does give this movement a dynamic quality even beyond that which is provided by the rhythmic energy of the original subject. Still, formally speaking, it's a somewhat puzzling movement, and different analysts have described it in very different ways. We'll hear the end of the movement in a real performance with the final episode leading up to the final appearance of the fugue theme. The next movement in 3-4, marked Andante, is in G major and is based on a Pasacaglia-like pattern of six measures which supports a lyrical melody of unusual grace and beauty. Each measure carries two chords. It begins with a tonic or G major on beats 1 and 2 and a dominant or D major on the third beat. This is repeated with only a slight change in measure 2. The third measure begins with an E minor or submedian chord and then passes to C major or a subdominant chord on the final beat and so on in a descending pattern through six bars. Here's what it sounds like. You probably heard that the harpsichordist added a few right-hand melodic embellishments here and there to supplement their realization of the bass line and figured bass cymbals. Here's another performance of the initial six bars, this one without the cello doubling the continual bass part. It's considerably more active in terms of providing a right-hand melody, borrowing phrases from some of the flute's later melodic variations. What does the original manuscript score say about all this? Well, there is no actual Bach autograph for this work, and one of the two most widely consulted copyist manuscripts simply leaves out the initial six bars and begins with the flute's entrance in the seventh bar. A different manuscript includes the first six bars, but, as in most published versions of the sonata since then, contains only the bass line and figured bass symbols, or, in some cases, a very simple and straightforward realization of the chords implied by the figured bass symbols. So, where do these melodic embellishments from the two recordings I played come from? I suppose the only answer is tradition. 
The harpsichordists, or whomever else is realizing the continual part, is exercising their historical privilege of realizing the continue freely, which includes incorporating melodic devices of their own. There's nothing wrong with this, of course, although I believe the first and more modest melodic contributions are more in keeping with the spirit of Bach's intentions than the second I played. In measure seven, the flute enters with a lovely lyrical line, beginning simply with a sustained note and becoming more florid as it goes. The melody is for the most part quite conjunct, based largely on scale lines as one might expect. There are some secondary motives that pop up from time to time, for example, a series of three descending sixteenth notes that enter at the end of a measure to help propel the next phrase into motion, and there are a number of sequentially repeated patterns, but the overall impression is that of a lyrical, semi-improvised flow. Here's an excerpt from the entrance of the flute melody carrying through to measure 19. At measure 19, after an emphatic cadence on G major, we're introduced to something of a contrasting middle section. The ostinato bass pattern does not disappear, but it is interrupted twice at the beginning of this section, and for the first time, Bach begins to move us away from G major, briefly toward A minor, and then more convincingly toward E minor, and on from there to B minor. The flute melody above these changing tonalities bears some resemblance to the first two melodic statements heard earlier, especially the idea of a long sustained note at the beginning of a phrase blossoming into a flurry of sixteenth notes at the end. But in general, the flute's activity is a bit more frenzied, reaching higher in the instrument's range more frequently. Arriving at a definitive cadence in B minor by bar 42, the flute provides a cadenza-like link to the final section of the movement. At this point, we return to the opening astonato pattern and the chord progression in G major from the continuo instruments, while the flute quotes the opening two measures of its initial statement. But having escalated the level of the flute's activity in the middle section, Bach has no desire to return us to the relatively sedate opening section of the movement, and as we approach the final bars, Bach replaces most of the original measures with busier, more virtuosic alternatives, particularly in the final measures which close with a series of exuberant bursts from the flute. It's an extremely attractive movement and certainly the lyrical high point of the work. We're back in E minor for the final movement, marked allegro, and again in 3-4 time. It's in a clear, unambiguous binary form. The first section closes in B minor, the minor dominant in the key, and exhibits first and second endings. The second section begins in B minor, but, in conventional fashion, makes its way back to E minor for a final, varied restatement of the initial theme. As in the second movement, also in Allegro, Bach makes some use of imitation as well, although the central thematic material, while quite distinctive both melodically and rhythmically, is less elaborate, and the imitation comes across as more of an echoing back and forth of short phrases than actual fugal imitation, 
separated by systematic contrasting episodes. The initial theme, short and sprightly, really only a single bar in length, which is immediately repeated with slight variation, is distinguished once again by its offbeat start, coming in on the second half of the first beat. Its basic elements are simple enough. It begins on the tonic and quickly flips in 16th notes down to its chromatically raised lower neighbor tone and then right back to tonic. Then it makes two dramatic leaps in a row, down a fourth and down a fifth, ending on the lower octave, from which it quickly darts upwards again in 16th notes. This two-bar theme is then imitated by the continual bass line, while the flute goes on to an interesting counter-melody rhythmically related to the theme, but also featuring some interesting across-the-bar suspensions. Here's a simplified example into the seventh measure. The imitation by continual bass down a couple of octaves is only exact for the first measure. The sixteenth notes in the bass line at the end of the fourth bar descend rather than ascend. Also, Bach doesn't seem to be terribly committed to imitation at this point because he breaks it off quickly, moving instead to a clever sequential pattern which seems at first to be heading toward D major. Except for making use of ascending sixteenth note patterns from time to time, hardly a unique device, this sequential passage doesn't initially seem to have much to do with the original theme of the movement. But right before we reach our definitive cadence on E minor, Bach has the continual bass quote a figure similar enough to the opening measure that we're reminded where we came from. Immediately following the emphatic cadence on E minor, a new thematic element is introduced, only two bars in length this time. It begins with five repeated eighth notes in a row, heard on B initially, the fifth of the tonic chord. And then, in the next measure, a leap to E, followed by an undulating scale pattern of sixteenths that works its way down the octave. The continual bass line provides an overlapping echo of the theme down a fifth a bar later. Here's a simplified version of the first four bars of this new section, led by the flute and echoed by the continual bass. After the continual bass imitates the subject down a fifth on E, the flute then duplicates the subject on the same note. Then the continual bass imitates the flute down a fifth again, and the flute chases it once again. So there's a lot of repetition here, although flute and continual repetitions of the same note are usually separated by a couple of octaves. And repetition of a single note in a faster movement is often very effective in making the faster moving passage that follows, in this case a series of sixteenth notes, sound even more impressive. And all of this repetition does not mean that we are in any way standing still or immobilized. In fact, we are charging through a series of secondary dominants again, which take us through A major, D major, G major very briefly, on the way to C major. Although by the time we pause on C major, Bach has dropped the repeated note idea and has, in its place, returned to the opening motive of the movement, or at least the first part of it. But even now Bach is not finished with sequencing. He continues it, even as he cleverly splits the thematic material from the opening measure between the flute and the continual bass. The flute repeats the little lower neighbor figure, while the continual bass provides the first and third beats of the measure as it continues to descend sequentially. 
Here's a simplified example of how the two parts fit together. This is followed by a passage of semi-sequential figuration patterns, with the final note of each measure soaring higher each time, and then a series of measures where the flute works back down the scale in a series of arpeggios. We probably expect the conclusion of this first section of the movement to be upon us at this point, but instead, Bach introduces a nifty little tail or codetta section in G major initially, which once again quotes the opening theme in the flute and then, after a couple of variations of the same in flute and continuo bass, he moves to the final cadence of the section. Here is the entire first section. I'm not going to try to provide as much detail for the second section, except to say that both of the themes for which I provided examples earlier continue to play a large role, although they sometimes appear in varied form. Some ideas that did not seem to play a large role in the first section, such as the countermelody that popped up in the flute in measures three and four against the continual bass imitation, now play a somewhat more important role in the second section. Other distinctive passages, for example, Bach's splitting of the first bar melody between flute and continual bass, which was demonstrated in example three earlier, occur again in two different forms, the first in a variant where the flute and continual bass parts are reversed, and the second in a form comparable to the original version. And, of course, sequences dominate the action, just as they did in section one. Section two comes to a close with a final statement of the opening theme, albeit in varied form, and initially an octave higher, before driving to the final cadence with some slightly surprising precadential harmonies along the way. All movements considered, the sonata in E minor may not be among the most distinctive or remarkable of Bach's chamber works. Its use of counterpoint is not especially rigorous, its use of modulation probably less original and less striking in effect, and its primary thematic ideas less intricate than in some other chamber works by Bach. But although Bach's themes are not particularly complex in this sonata, they are nevertheless memorable, in some instances charged with rhythmic energy and cleverly developed. These qualities, combined with the general playability of the work for skilled flautists, has made the work a popular one. We'll turn now to the B minor sonata for flute and harpsichord obligato, 
VWV 1030. This is assumed to be a later work, although the harpsichord part survives in a G minor version which is assumed to have existed previously. There are also thematic links with a cantata, number 117, and these things together have suggested to Marshall and other Bach scholars a composition date between 1729 and 1731, the earlier date matching with Bach, assuming his responsibilities with the Leipzig Collegium Musicum, a position which caused him to once again devote a great deal of his attention to instrumental music. Bach takes a different approach to sonatas with harpsichord obligato, writing out the harpsichord part in full with active and independent right-hand and left-hand parts. This, of course, makes it possible to have three real contrapuntal voices, and, with Bach, the more contrapuntal voices at his disposal, the more complex and, perhaps, the more interesting a composition is going to be. The first movement is in B minor, marked andante and in common time. The initial melodic statement from the flute is just four bars long. Here's a simplified version of those four bars. It's an interesting theme, marked by gentle syncopations, short, long, short, short, long, with a second short note embellished by a rapid ornamental figure employing lower and upper neighbors. It begins by leaping up a fifth from the tonic of B to F-sharp, which it repeats six times in the first bar, and then, after hovering around the fifth of the scale, it works its way downward in bar two. What makes the melody particularly effective, though, is neither its repetitiveness nor its gentle syncopations, but rather its interaction with the harpsichord part. While the flute melody repeats the fifth note of the scale again and again with mild syncopations, the left hand of the harpsichord part moves steadily up the B minor scale on the beat, setting off the syncopations even more clearly. And the right hand of the harpsichord part, after leading into the movement with three stepwise descending sixteenths, proceeds to do the sort of things Bach does so well. It actually presents two lines at once. The lower line begins by moving up and down with the left hand bass in thirds, while the top line hovers around the tonic note, the B natural, embellishing it with upper and lower neighbors and acting as a counterbalance to the repeated F-sharps in the flute. The left-hand bass also spends some time decorating the tonic note with lower neighbor tones, at the same time that the top line of the right hand is making use of upper neighbor tones, so it's all wonderfully coordinated. By the second bar, the left-hand bass breaks its original pattern to set up a cadence on tonic. Bach is not the only Baroque composer capable of intertwining contrapuntal lines like this, but it's doubtful that anyone else has ever done it better. Here's a brief example of the first two bars, an actual performance showing how all three parts interlock together. I suppose it might be considered a little unusual in a flute sonata for the flute to drop out after only two bars and defer to the keyboard instrument, while it makes an important and largely unrelated melodic statement of its own. But the Bach flute sonatas with harpsichord obligato are somewhat different than the flute sonatas with continuo accompaniment, and they frequently provide the harpsichord equal opportunity to display and develop important melodic ideas in a way which just wouldn't be possible when working with a continuo alone. At any rate, the harpsichord statement in measures 3 and 4 is an important one, 
at least one motivic element of which, the chromatic descending line it introduces, is to play an important role as the movement proceeds. Here are the third and fourth measures. The descending chromatic line is actually incorporated on two separate levels simultaneously. It is probably most noticeable in the left-hand bass as it moves down in groups of three eighth notes separated by eighth rests in measure three, but it is also to be found in measure three within the figuration pattern played by the right hand, although the pattern is less pure there. At the end of my example, you could hear the original flute motive returning in a form virtually identical with the first two bars. As the movement continues to unfold, the ideas from the first two bars of flute melody are spun out in different ways. The repeated note idea is still present, but takes on a new form as a series of eighth notes, as do the gentle syncopations caused by the eighth quarter eighth patterns. Also, the melody expands upward. The opening leap of a fifth from B to F sharp has now been transformed into a new series of leaps, stretching higher in the flute's range against some circle of fifth harmonic progressions in the harpsichord that generate some lovely passing dissonances. And the descending chromatic line, which we first encountered in the harpsichord statement in measure three, is now also incorporated into the flute melody as it continues to expand. There are new melodic motives introduced as we continue, of course. Here's a third important idea that makes a distinctive use of mildly dissonant appoggiaturas. So, not everything relates directly to the motives I focused on earlier, but those ideas do continue to make their presence felt in the flute melody and the increasingly complex figuration patterns in the harpsichord. To show how this fits together, we'll hear an excerpt starting from the beginning and continuing to a cadence in measure 22.
Near the end of my example, you could hear a transition into the next section of the movement, one increasingly dominated by 16th note triplets, although earlier motives are referenced periodically. Triplets of this sort are sometimes described as a gallant gesture, suggesting the lighter, simpler, and perhaps more elegant style that was beginning to emerge around this time in the Baroque period. While it's true that Bach sometimes mixes in these triplet figures with other more traditional duple rhythms, they are frequently heard in extended undulating passages, often sequentially organized, and in that context do not particularly suggest gallant simplicity. After a series of modulations, we arrive in F-sharp minor, where we immediately hear the opening flute theme in the new key. At that point, it probably dawns on us that we're in the midst of another ritornello-based movement. In this particular ritornello, the flute takes over the ideas previously introduced by the harpsichord, and the harpsichord eventually assumes the thematic material originally assigned to the flute. In fact, all of the earlier ideas are present, even if they're switched from one instrument to another, and they are now developed at slightly greater length and with greater rhythmic complexity than previously encountered. Here's a brief excerpt showing the final bars of this ritornello going into the triplet-based episode that follows it. Particularly noticeable at this point is the descending chromatic line heard earlier, and the third thematic idea, the one featuring the distinctive appoggiaturas echoing back and forth between flute and harpsichord. When the final ritornello appears, back in the original key of B minor, the original melody returns in the harpsichord initially, and then later in the flute. But as usual, this is no mere duplication of the opening ritornello. Exchanges of motives abound, and sixteenth note triplet passages now play a much larger role as we move toward the final cadence. It's a long and complex movement, and probably needs at least a couple of hearings to penetrate very far into it. Here is the last section with the final echoes of the original thematic material before the cadence.
The slow movement that follows, marked Largo e Dolce and in D major, is a lovely movement in 6-8 meter with a gentle Siciliano-type melody. The opening measure provides the most memorable melodic gesture of the movement, an ascending D major triad based on a lilting, dotted rhythm that peaks on an accented non-harmonic tone in the form of an on-the-beat grace note, as the harmony swings from the tonic to the subdominant. The second measure is less distinctive, although it too exploits some prominent non-harmonic tones as it proceeds slowly up the scale in a series of subtle syncopations. Here are the first two measures. You probably noticed that the harpsichord accompaniment is generally simple and block-like, but it provides what might be considered admirably varied harmonic support. Six different chords in just the first six beats, and at a slow tempo, so those chord changes have at least a little time to make an impact on the listener's ear. And toward the end of both measures, the harpsichord takes over the melodic interest from the flute with relatively rapid 30-second note scale passages, which lead into the next flute phrase. These two measures provide the most important thematic material for the whole movement, although it must be added that the whole movement is only 16 bars long, 8 in the first section and 8 in the second. As the first section progresses, the flute wanders further afield from the original thematic statement, although subtle syncopations of the sort I referred to earlier continue to be heard. Tonally, we head first to E minor, and then toward the dominant, where the first section comes to an end. The second section of the movement begins on dominant, but reports back immediately to tonic, while the flute presents a variation of the opening theme, reharmonized and re-embellished. As this second section proceeds, the flute continues with increasingly florid and dramatic lines, now punctuated with dramatic ascending leaps from time to time, as the harpsichord accompaniment continues to fill in the lagging activity at the end of each measure. The mood never really changes. The movement continues its gentle, Siciliano-like lyricism, although the solo flute, in arpeggiating a full-diminished seventh chord in the measure preceding the final cadence, does add just a hint of last-minute tension. Here is the second section of the movement.
There is one rather puzzling thing about the last movement of the sonata, which returns to the key of B minor. The first section is indicated as alla breve and marked presto and ends on a fermata. But there is a second longer section, sometimes actually indicated as a separate movement, marked allegro and with the unusual time signature of 1216, which itself contains two repeated sections. How do these two tempos relate to each other? Wouldn't we expect presto to indicate a faster tempo than allegro? But the 1216 meter would itself tend to suggest a quick tempo. So, is the allegro section actually faster than the presto section? Sometimes it is performed that way, and at other times the pulse remains about the same, but the constant triplet activity gives the impression of a quicker tempo. In his handling of thematic material, the movement, or pair of movements, is less mysterious. The presto movement begins with a fairly long eight-measure fugue subject played by the flute with slower-moving accompaniment from the harpsichord's left hand. The most important motive for this particular subject doesn't come until the second measure. It consists of a large ascending leap, followed by a descending second, followed by another larger descending leap. While the entire pattern initially descends in the first four bars, it begins to ascend in the fifth. Here's a simplified and slowed-down example. As you can hear, the pattern breaks off in the fourth bar for an implied dominant chord, but then resumes for measures 5 through 7, breaking in the eighth bar with the last measure of the subject, moving to an undulating scale pattern in eighth notes, which ends by soaring upward in preparation for the fugal imitation from the harpsichord, which comes in at the fifth, adjusted for the lower octave. After the imitation is played out, we encounter the first episode. It's mostly new, with the right hand of the harpsichord continuing in eighth note scales and the flute engaged in a slower-moving but strongly shaped ascending line, before it, too, follows the harpsichord in a passage of faster-moving eighth notes. Here's the opening subject, the first imitation, and the first episode. At the end of my example, you could hear the flute returning with the subject. From this point on, we hear alternating fugal passages, usually rather brief, followed by episodes, some of which are quite dynamic, until things come to a halt on a dominant chord and a fermata. At that point, the meter changes as described earlier, and we launch into a new theme, based on fast-moving 16th note triplets with numerous ties across the strong beats. And yet, it's not completely a new theme. The first two measures employ an interval pattern very similar to the subject heard in the presto section, or movement depending on how it's designated. After that, this theme moves on to a figuration pattern, which is still based on the descending motion of the first theme, but in a very different context. Here's a simplified and slowed-down example of the first few measures 
including just one measure of the imitation from the harpsichord right hand. After the imitation in the right hand plays out, we hear an echoing of shorter motives back and forth between flute and harpsichord right hand, as the left hand adds some new ideas of its own. This sort of interplay continues until we cadence on the dominant, F-sharp major, several measures later, ending the first section of the presto. We'll hear a performance to that point. You'll notice that the flute counter melody, which shows a lot of energy and again a strong sense of direction, tends to dominate even as the harpsichord presents its imitation of the theme. The second section carries on with much of the familiar thematic material from the first, or variants of it, but there are some new ideas introduced as well. The flute, for example, begins to sustain much longer notes at one point, sometimes embellished with a trill before returning to the more frantic triplet-based motives. The right hand of the harpsichord duly imitates this and adds a few new trills of its own, which complicates the texture somewhat. But although much of the thematic material and the echoing of phrases back and forth is familiar enough, Bach still manages to provide enough momentum that the movement and the entire sonata ends with a surge of energy. Here's the final section of the movement. The B minor sonata is clearly a formidable work. 
historians disagree as to just which virtuoso it may have been composed for, but it's clear that whomever it was must have been an excellent flautist. We may come back to the other Bach flute sonatas in later episodes, but for the next episode, we're going to take a look at Bach's famous French Suites for Keyboard.